Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 458. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 458 you're listening to. And my guest today is Grammy-nominated mixer engineer Matt Hennessy, who has worked with R. Kelly, Jay-Z, Kanye West, Twista, the legendary Trackster, and many, many others. And he is a member of my Dolby Atmos Mixers Network, and I've gotten to know him through that. And I'm super excited that he's here because he's got uh, just a great brain and some great ideas, and I I love engaging with him. So I'm super happy he's here. So we're going to talk about all the shit that I always talk about. You know, it's going to be uh, the journey, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, we're going to talk about Atmos because it's something we both have in common and are both very passionate about. So uh, yeah, Matt Hennessy coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about discovery. So I was at the Lafayette Art and Wine Festival. This is this thing that occurs every year in Lafayette where, as it says, it's art and wine and they sell beer and wine and you know, tchotchkes, lots of booths with things that, you know, quite honestly, I don't really need. But, you know, it's a lot of cool stuff, a lot of kitschy, weird stuff. But there's a lot of stages at uh, this art and wine festival, and there's many bands playing. So I was down there with my youngest son. We were seeing an old friend play in this jazz group, actually a couple friends. And we were sitting there watching it, and there was a uh, little boy, I don't know, could couldn't have been more than four or five years old and he was just sitting there in front of everybody like really close to the stage staring you know neck angled up at the stage just staring at the players and listening and you could see it in his eyes just that that sense of like what am i hearing what are these people doing kind of a thing and I was just really taken by it because you could see that he was at that point of discovery, like where he's trying to dissect and understand what it is he's he's absorbing and it's obviously compelling to him. And I'm sure many of you remember that moment when you first heard music and you try to discern what it was you were listening to. You try to, you know, understand like, first time you heard a pedal steel I'm sure you know you, you try to figure out well, what's making that sound and what are those reverb sounds you know and eventually you know you grow up and you figure it out and you dissect it and it becomes like part of everyday life for you and it just really got me thinking about how jealous I was of that kid of that that feeling of discovery and I thought wow it'd be really interesting to to go back and rediscover uh, music in that way. And I think as adults, we uh, continue to try to seek that discovery in everything that we do as we discover or become aware of the things that are going on around us, you know, just staying in the lane of, of what we all do. 
you know, you figure out music, you understand, oh, okay, that's how those sounds are made. And then to discover recording and understand, oh, this is how I capture, this is how I present, this is how I manipulate, this is how I uh, create what it is we all do. But I think, I may be completely full of shit here, I think we are continuing to try to either self-create or find things that we're attracted to that allows us to re-enter that phase of discovery, of trying to understand what it is in front of us. I know those of us who are you know, deeply involved in Atmos, that's another uh, realm of discovery that we're trying to uh, decipher and understand. And, you know, there's obviously a much more mature adult brain at work there than there was when we were all trying to figure out, you know, the sounds of music and how that's put together. But I do find it fascinating that, you know, these different topics that we can get ourselves absorbed in, it makes me wonder if, is it, is it because we're seeking discovery? Are we seeking that challenge that, what is this new thing, whatever that new thing is? And how is it put together? What makes it tick? What, you know, why does it sound, look, feel, etc., like the way it does? So seeing that little boy and then coming home and kicking back on the couch and rewatching the movie Arrival about the aliens that come, it just really got me thinking about the sense of discovery and how important that is. And if you lose that, I think that's where we start to become a little jaded. And that's where we start to burn out. And that's where we start to um, become the grumpy old sound people that sometimes we're portrayed as. So I guess, you know, aside from all this meandering I'm doing here with you, um, I think my message or my rant is don't lose that sense of discovery because I think that that is what uh, keeps us alive, that keeps the, the brain firing on all cylinders and it just makes life interesting. So don't lose touch with that little kid standing in front of the stage trying to dissect what he's hearing and uh, seeing. And uh, yeah, keep it alive. Keep that discovery alive. That's it. Not much more I could say about that. So discovery. Yeah, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Matt Hennessy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to finally uh, link up and be here. Yeah, always good to have a fellow Matt on the show. <laughs> I've had numerous Matts. Correct. Um, I've even had another Matthew Boudreau, strangely enough. No way. Threw people for a loop. Yeah, a Matthew Boudreau who's involved in like theatrical audio. Anyways, great to have you here. Yeah. I'm just going to jump right the hell in. Let's do it. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I was born in Quincy, Illinois, actually. So downstate, kind of near St. Louis, really small town. My parents had gone to college out there and then just stayed. I was down there until I was like seven or eight. And it was, you know, soccer and pickup trucks. That's a... Uh, that's all it really kind of was. So like, I definitely would not be doing this for sure if I had stayed down there. But uh, we moved up to Chicago, to the suburbs of Chicago. My dad got a job downtown Chicago working at Fannie Mae Candy. You know, so we lived in the suburbs for schools. And uh, so it was Downers Grove was uh, where I grew up. And then, uh, yeah, I was there till I was like 18. And did you have brothers or sisters? Yeah, I have a younger brother. He's like five years younger than me. Uh, John works in philanthropy. 
Ah, okay. And when you grew up, did anybody around you influence you musically or electronically? Not really. <laughs> None, no one in my family was, was musically inclined. Nobody, I, I didn't have a, a family role model that I looked up to like, oh, they're in the music business or anything. That. I, don't, I don't even really have any, can't say I had any friends at that era that, that were, you know, tangentially involved in the music business. But I, you know, got involved with elementary school music and stuff like that, playing saxophone and, and being in jazz bands and, and really locked in and really liked jazz music at that age. And then started playing in combos and things like that. And that just really felt right. Then I uh, picked up guitar a little bit and around the grunge era of music, started trying to put together small rock bands and stuff like that, that I was a part of. And I think my first taste of the tech side of it all was going to Radio Shack, buying like one of those little four channel mixers because we needed to record a demo tape for the Battle of the Bands. And I remember like getting really, really into that. And like, how could I, with the three microphones that I had and this four channel mixer to this cassette deck that I found in the attic, like how could I sort of make that happen? And so that's kind of the beginning of, beginning of all that for me. I feel bad for the kids these days that don't have a Radio Shack. I feel bad for me not having Radio Shack. It was such a, just a, a great place to get exposed to audio. I don't know. There was something about it that just drew me in. Yeah, same, same. Just mix, you know, little, those little black four-channel realistic mixers that they had there and, like, you know, the giant bins of random capacitors and uh, adapters upon adapters upon adapters and, and just all that. I just, it always felt right. For me at the Radio Shack. <laughs> I had a six-channel Radio Shack mixer. Eventually, I I got a second four-channel and daisy-chained it into the first one. So that got me... I was sub-mixing into the first mixer, and that got me more channels, which uh, allowed me to put microphones on everybody in the band, which was pretty cool. So that Radio Shack mixer, the attic-based or the attic find of the cassette mm -hmm. machine, did that start to awaken the uh, the recording thing in your brain? Maybe. I think that it started for me, like, honestly, like, where, where it really clicked was when the Walkman came out. And being able to, for the first time, being able to, to take cassettes portably and put headphones on. So I have a very, very vivid memory of that first experience where I got to use a Walkman that an adult had been given as a, uh, my grandfather had been given as a Christmas present, right? So it's really early on. So it was, you know, these things were still expensive as all hell. You know, he let me take it and I put in, uh, I think I put in um, an early Genesis album, probably Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or something like that on cassette. And I remember I put that on and I turned it up and I crawled underneath the dining room table and then didn't move for basically the entire playthrough of the album. And that was the first like headphone experience that I really like locked in and was like, yo, there's something really cool here going on in the way this is put together and the sonics of all this. And so you know, I started started listening more intently at that point, but I didn't get exposed to the studio or like the recording process outside of those realistic <laughs> mixers, which, you know, in, 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 until I was probably like 14 or 15, the jazz combo I was in in high school at that point, uh, we raised money to go record a demo and we recorded at uh, this place called Jordan Studios here in Chicago, which is where they did Eye of the Tiger. 
And uh, oh. so it was a big, it was a big fucking deal, right? Like that's all they want to talk about. They're like, you're in the studio where we did Eye of the Tiger right now, and we're like, yeah, we're here to play jazz, but all right, sure. <laughs> um, but they had a big ass SSL, like a like a 64 channel, or which when you're 14 and you had never seen an SSL thing, looked like an aircraft carrier, and it had moving fader automation because they made the faders do the, uh, the the demo mode ripple, and I just was like, I don't know what is going on in this room. But I want to be in this room. Whatever's happening in here, I want to. I want to experience more of. So that's that's where it really first started for me. So as a player, were you fixated on being a player, and did you have designs on taking that somewhere in the future? Sure. Okay. Yeah. And, and did this recording experience derail that? No. No. So I, I thought to myself, like, okay, there's money in jazz music somehow, I thought. Like, uh, you could just, like, be an alto sax player and, like, make a living that uh, is profitable, like, you know. And, and, and my, my, my thought process of what was, like, a profitable music industry career was, like, sting. You know, like, oh, I'll be a millionaire and live in Italy. And, like, that, like it, didn't, it didn't make sense, right? And so... You know, I, I did the studio thing, and I thought, okay, this is really cool, but it didn't like, it didn't, it didn't deviate me from the path at that point, right? Mm. Um, and so I was, I was very focused on going to Berklee College of Music. Like that's what I thought I really wanted to do. That's where I wanted to go study. That's where I wanted to pursue jazz. And so, like, I didn't even know that they had production and engineering school there. Like, I didn't even at that point, I didn't even know what the difference between a producer and engineer was. Like, it just I knew what the recording studio was, but I didn't know anything beyond that. And I didn't understand how that was a job or, or anything. So the summer before I left for college, I was trying to just figure out things to do with my summer. And my dad had met somebody that knew somebody that worked, owned a recording studio. And he was like, oh, you know, my son had, had been in a recording studio recently and really liked it, you know, and they were like, oh, well, maybe he could come intern. And I didn't even know what that was, but I was like, all right, cool. And so, you know, I showed up at this studio uh, in, in the suburbs of Chicago and it was mopping floors and cleaning toilets and they had rehearsal stages at this studio. So it was a fucking mess all of the time. And they had one little studio in the center of it all, you know, two inch tape base still, obviously some sort of tack board. I think I can't, I can't remember nothing nothing like high fidelity or anything and so i worked there for the summer and uh the engineer there and me we like really got along and so he started just like showing me stuff on how the desk worked how the preamps work how he put mics up on things and then i remember one day in august he was like and so i've been there for a couple months at this point and he was like cool we got a drum session day just go ahead and get drum sounds i was like what Oh, okay. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I put the mics that I had seen him put on the drums before and like I turned the preamps up and like tried to figure it out. And he came back in like two hours later and like looked at it and listened to it. He's like, ah, it's like a C minus for your first shot. That's not bad. And then he just fixed everything and went about his session. And so, you know, I, I thought that was, was really cool and I had a really good time doing it, but still wasn't deviating from from the course you know still going to be jazz musician this is what i was going to do right so i get to berkeley and uh one of the early classes that they have like when you first get there is there's this like a big lecture hall and there's a bunch of you and they start like breaking down the revenue streams uh that are possible 
in the music business, where the royalties come from, how how this all works and like what you can physically do to make money in this business and how mm. many jazz labels there are and how many people are on these labels and how this is all going to work. And I realized like, I was like, okay, for an alto sax player, you know, Kenny Garrett's already out there and he's young. He's pretty good. So I'm probably not going to take his spot. And, and I was like, okay, so there's these couple other labels. There's probably... There's probably a shot for an alto player like every seven to 10 years to maybe catch. And then I looked around the room and I was like, yo, there are like 10 monster players in this room right now. Like Julio, Julio Shaw was in that class. Bob Reynolds was in that class. Cohen siblings were in this class. All these fucking monster players. And I'm not saying I wasn't like a decent player, but I was like, yo, I am going to be teaching high school band. This is not... This is not the avenue that I signed up for. This is not this is not sexy. There'll be no mansion in Italy. This is not great. And so I had this really like like cathartic moment where I thought like, okay, I've made a giant mistake coming here. Um, <laughs> and so I was like walking around in the basement of Berkeley, you know, past the the um the cafeteria and the lockers and like as I'm wandering around, I'm, I like hear like rock music just like blasting out of a room and I thought okay this is probably like a, a rehearsal room and I look in and there's an SSL console and a tape machine and somebody's recording and I was like oh that's cool they have studios here I didn't know that and I keep moving down the hallway and like out the next door I'm hearing jazz just banging I look in that room it's another SSL console another tape machine another dude making a record I was like Okay, and I just, so I keep going down the hallway and this repeats like six times like there's six full Studios in this basement. And I'm just like what is like I it just blew my mind I'm like what is going on down here and at the end of the hallway? There's like this galley door right and there it's like like 11 p.m. At this point right and there's this woman standing with a big smile standing at the galley door And so I walk up and I'm like so there's just recording studios down here and she was like, oh, yeah Yeah, you know, I was like well could I like could I rent? one of these recording studios and like make records and she was like no 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 you can't <laughs> like what, what do you mean no i can't i go i go i pull out my id i'm like no i go to the school she's like no this is like a whole other school inside the school that you would have to apply to to be in the production and engineering college and i was like well that's kind of fucked up like i already pay a zillion dollars to come here like why can't i just use these studios but you know that's not how it worked just to see what would happen i applied and, and got in the next year to that that side. I continued my performance degree and finished that all the way out because I felt like the ear training and the theory and just the experience and the musicality of all that would be something that I would want to have in my you know abilities list at the end of mm -hmm. school. But then I also just really dove in deep into the recording studio stuff. Unlike the, the, the struggle, how am I going to figure out how to make this, the recording studio thing like clicked for me like very instantly, very square peg, square hole sort of situation. So, How old were you at that time? I was 18 when I got to Berkeley, so I would have been 19. I was 18 when I found those studios and 19 when I got into the college, yeah. So I was like 17 when I got that first, 18 when I got that first internship. Wow. So young. I, I guess I'm a little surprised at the clarity at that age of like, okay, this ain't going to work out, but I'm going to do this to take care of this business of ear training, and I'm going to pursue this other thing. Yeah, I don't, I, I can't like say that I thought it through in a way that feels adult, but it's just sort of how it happened. You know, like, oh, I don't want to not do this thing, and I, I do want to do this thing. 
And I remember talking to my dad about it, like as I was going through, he's like, oh, I already see what's going to happen here. You're just not going to do the, the performance thing. And you're going to, I would do it too. The technology is so exciting. And I was like, ah, but I mean, I've just, I spent 10 years of my life, like being a player and I wasn't ready to kind of just like abandon that, that thought line. I think it's a, a real struggle that a lot of people have as players. Yeah. Making that deciding, like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do this. Yeah. But I've put all this time in. Ironically, though, I did make that, did inevitably make that decision. Like, after I, after I finished at Berkeley, um, and I, I felt at the peak of my playing ability when I, when I finished. Um, like, it was, it was cool. I was feeling real, real hip. Um, but it was a grind that last year to get through the ultra high level ear training and those, the juried performances and the stuff that was expected from the multiple private lesson players, as well as like keeping up the session load that I'd started to take on. So I was now interning at a, a big studio in the suburbs of Boston and I was working at a, a professional studio across the street and I was working mm -hmm. all my friends records at first. So I was like, I was getting like three hours of sleep a night cause I was working in the studio till like, four or five in the morning and then getting a couple hours sleep then immediately have classes then i had to put like six seven hours of playing in and like it, the the grind was really kind of awful at the end and when i moved back to chicago i had no money uh obviously because you're just leaving college and the apartment that i could afford i couldn't practice in uh saxophones are loud instruments you can't really play them too quietly and when the walls are what they are like you're kind of in this situation where you're like okay well what am i gonna do about this um and so you know by the time i had enough money or space at a studio that i could have practiced again it had already been a couple years and the recording thing when i hit chicago went very quickly and i got very busy very quick and so it just deviated and dropped very, very quickly. Meaning the the playing of the sax yes. just, yeah, just diminished. Fell it fell off. But what about your interest level at that time? I mean, you, you, so you got out. I mean, you were obviously still thinking about saxophone. Sure, sure. Still thinking about it. But I was so excited to be working in a major studio as an engineer that had, you know, five rooms and big SSLs. And we were working on big records and like... Fill in that gap for me because I, I maybe I missed that there. But so you graduate, yep. come back to Chicago, yep, and then you immediately hit the ground running at a studio. Yeah. So the studio that I was at in Boston got bought by the Backstreet Boys. Um, <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> um, ironically, a lot of the gear that's in my room uh, right now, all the vintage outboards, LA twos, and and uh, all that great stuff, it all came from Blue Jay when the Backstreet Boys stopped recording there and then they stopped paying the property taxes. It all got foreclosed on and Vintage King ended up with all the gear. And my guy at VK, who I knew, was like, didn't you used to work here? Because we have all the gear. And so I got all of the gear, but that's a whole other story. But anyway, so Backstreet Boys got this, bought the studio and Kevin uh, had been at a studio uh, in Chicago called Chicago Tracks, um, which also was the studio that uh, I want to put this delicately, a, a major R&B star that's had some legal troubles over the last uh, 10 years or so uh, was living and working. And um, being a fan of R&B music like I was, 
through those sessions, he was like, oh, I could just call the studio owner and probably get you in at this studio. And I was like, that would be awesome. And so he made the call. They put me on with the chief engineer, who's this this dude named Larry Sturm. And you Kevin know, is Kevin from the Backstreet Boys? From the Backstreet Boys, Boys yeah. Yes. Ke- was that Kevin... Fe- Feder- no, not, not... Yeah, I was going to say Federline, too. No, I don't remember his last name. Federline's the Britney okay. Spears dude. Um, Kevin, the, he's tall, lanky dude. Anyway, yeah. Kevin from okay, Backstreet. So yeah. and, we'll and just I, call him Back, Backstreet Kevin. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, like, if you were to ever to run into this dude and be like, do you remember any of this? He probably... This is a, a short interaction that just really worked out for me. You know, because I was working on that record at Blue Jay with them, and he just made the connections for me. So we moved back to Chicago, and I got in assisting immediately, and then was engineering within 60 days, probably, and then was just working sessions. And then was in way over my head, (laughs) and uh, a year later, I was running the bulk of the, you know, bulk of the hip-hop and R&B sessions there, which was pretty wild. And and over your head, meaning what? Uh, I I had so little experience in like full album completion, how like non-college sessions were supposed to work, you know, non-low pressure. Like some of this stuff was really high pressure, high-end stuff that was was going on. And I didn't have the calmness and skill set required quite yet to execute, but... I was doing good enough work that no one seemed to mind. So like it just, uh, it just worked out. And who were you working with at that time? So ministry was in and out of the studio at that point a lot. Right. And like I said, I was working quite a bit with the, um, R and B singer that, uh, that, uh, I named earlier, but then like, because of, because of him and, and the studio was in, um, in Cabrini Green, which was like a uh, really dangerous um, housing project area in, in Chicago. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. Right, I know so, the name. Yeah, so the studio's called Chicago Tracks, and so we're it was in Cabrini Green because that's where the, the the they could afford to to build this giant studio. And so like we ended up like just getting and, and there was a lot of rooms and a lot of space, and so we started getting a lot of like people who wanted to. Um, kind of hole up in sort of a not awesome area and tap into that urban thing and like make rap records. And so like I did DMX's fifth album, Grand Champ there. Uh, I did a early Kanye West stuff there. Um, we were working with Michelle from Destiny's Child and uh, sometimes the rest of the girls would come through. Like it was, there was a lot. Ludacris was coming through. Like it was, there was a lot going on um, there. Wow. And so a lot of stuff to do. Wow. You were still fairly young. I was like 22. Damn. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, I wasn't, like, I can't say, like, so many, when I when I hear people talk about their career arc often, like, when it, that are, and I'm, in, I'm in my mid-40s now, so, like, when I talk to my peers or I talk to people that are, you know, slightly, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I assisted for this chunk of time and I learned the business and I did, I didn't, I didn't get any of that. Like, I didn't get any of that benefit, none of that. I barely knew like the full technological aspect of everything. I could calibrate the two inch machine. No problem. I knew how the SSL worked forward and back. I understood gains. Like I knew how to get good sound, but like the rest of the, how to make sessions run smooth. Like I didn't know any of that. <laughs> how long did that carry on for? So this was 2001. Cause I moved back to Chicago in September of 2001, right before September 11th. That's how I can remember it. And so 
We were at Chicago Tracks for probably three years. And at that point, the legal issues that were mounting for the mainstay R&B client got to a point where they felt like no outside sessions could happen there anymore. And we were given kind of an ultimatum that you either only work on these records or you don't work here uh, anymore. And we had just wrapped up um, recording for Twista's Kamikaze album, which is the one that had slow jams on it and all the, those, those first breakout Kanye hits uh, with Twista. And that album needed to be mixed. And so my mentor, who is the one that got me that job, that dude, Larry Sturm, that I, that I talked about earlier, had already left and gone to another studio. And so he was like, come over to this other studio you know, called United Technique. You, know, you can just work here and figure out how you're going to do your sessions and if you can help me with my sessions and we'll just figure it out. And so I left then and the studio, Chicago Tracks closed probably, I don't know, maybe a year and a half to two years after that. Um, the mm. land just was worth so much because the housing project was gone and uh, the, the people who own the building cashed out. Yeah, no surprise. That area is now super safe and super high end i i run through that area all the time and i run through there with my my 14 year old son and i'm just like you have no idea what this area was like <laughs> <laughs> what happens next where do you go from there i worked at united technique which <laughs> which uh the primary client at united technique was the band disturbed and so uh the bass player fuzz was one of the co-owners of that studio. And so they were, they were in and out of there all the time. And like those, those kind of uh, bands that were around them, like Taproot and Chevelle and those kind of guys, like when they were in Chicago, they would come through. And uh, eventually I ended up helping work on the live album. The music is a weapon to tour. And so I helped work on that. That took about a year or so to, it was a really big project because they, they dragged a Pro Tools rig around with them and recorded every show. And <laughs> they had three live microphones on stage. Uh, so there was the vocal mic and the cymbals. And everything else, the rest of the drums were all triggered. And the guitar was in an ISO cab under the stage and the bass was in an ISO cab under the stage. So everything was completely isolated. And they, they, they ran the show off a click, identical every night. And so when all of the tour was done, we were actually able to assemble Franken takes of every song and be like, okay, we're going to take the guitar from Texas and the drums from Ohio and the vocals from New York and the bass from Chattanooga. And because it was to click and perfectly isolated, we were able to just assemble those elements into like everybody's favorite show that they played on the, the tour. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. Um, so we did that. And then, um, after that, there's a big studio that opened just south of that called Pressure Point. And it was like big investors. They put in, you know, spent millions of dollars trying to create this like destination studio, right? Like a LA studio in, in Chicago. And, and they hired Larry to be the chief engineer there, but there was no spaces for anybody to come with him. They already had the whole rest of it staffed. And so I was kind of like, all right, well, you're leaving. And I don't really know, like, I don't know that I want to stay here at United Technique. I don't know what to do. And at that point, Pro Tools was powerful enough that people were beginning to mix in the box. 
Like that was we're talking about we're at like two thousand five maybe at this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little maybe a little earlier. We might be in two thousand four still. And so I was watching how everything was kind of evolving and I was like, I think that this is the future. And I think that the people that understand how to use the computer fast and efficient and can do the chopping and the flying and the the editing quickly are going to be the people that kind of like make it through this next reshuffling of the industry. And so I knew that if I stayed at an analog studio and I stayed working on consoles and I stayed there, I knew I knew that I would never like really do the computer thing because I would just be like these plugins are stupid and like I have a real compressor here or like why would I submix it in the computer I have enough faders and kick ass EQ like that I wouldn't do it so I found this little studio called Alien that was it was like a like a six card HD system with one Apogee 8 channel converter and they only did vocals mixing and mastering there uh, it was like a Genelec surround sound mastering control room, mixing, mixing and mastering control room. And like there was there was like three preamps, two compressors. And like that was it. The rest of it was all all computer. And they had a they had a, a original um, pro control there and just two monitors like like right in front of you. And I just said, all right, fuck it. Let's go. It was a low rate, you know, studio. And I just really dove in and that shit went crazy. Like. I got really fast and was still, you know, like 25, 26, 20, something like that, right? So still super young and super tapped in with what was going on in R&B and hip hop in Chicago. And because the rate was like, I think like 60 an hour or something like that, like the place just got booked, like crazy booked. And so we were just slammed and it was really cool just trying to develop this new skill set, mixing fully in the box, no outboard gear, no anything, and just learning what I could do, how quick I could do it, and 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 servicing the, these younger kids in the way that they wanted things to happen for them. And so that was really, it, it was really kind of a, a, a fortuitous turn because I got really fast at, at Pro Tools, uh, really quick. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. After you graduated from Berkeley, were you able to survive and just stay working in studios, or did you have any other gigs? No, I've had no other gigs. I've not done anything. I've not done anything else. Wow. Um, now I. That's remarkable. I will say, like, let, let's let's be let's be very clear and keep all the cards on the table. Like, um, I've been married for 22 years at this point, and so when I moved back to Chicago, I got married immediately. I'd been with uh, my wife at that point for like multiple years there was no question in my mind that this was the person that i wanted to be with she is a cpa accountant so she hit the ground running working for large companies so like while i wasn't making nothing uh i was making some money enough that i probably could have afforded a rat trap uh, apartment myself but we were dual income at that point and she was doing decent so she definitely helped float us through those early years i i know that scenario all too well yeah yeah god bless her um yeah. So, yeah. So, um, you're at this, you're at this spot mm -hmm. and it's just blowing up at mm -hmm. 60 bucks an hour yeah. and, uh, <laughs> you're getting fast at, you know, in the box work and yeah. You know, how long were you there? So I was there for like two years and this is a really, it's funny. I told somebody this story last night. This is the, like a very key moment for me. And it's so random, like the way this stuff happens. Right. And so the owner of that studio uh, like I was, I was keeping most of that rate, right? Cause he didn't care about the studio. Like what he thought his, like he, he had been a mastering engineer, but he had made a ton of money early dot coms. Right. And so he wasn't really relying on any sort of income and all he was focused on was he wanted to build this company that built websites that were user updatable. And they were built in Flash, right? And so we all remember <laughs> yeah. that Flash websites, you can't see me right now, are the size of a postage stamp in the middle of your screen. But at the time, it was the only technology that could be user updated. You know, so like he, he dreamed of this world where he could put a, a website up for you and then you, without having to call your web developer, could add pictures or change the music or change the wording or move stuff around or add a new page or whatever. Because it was all the user editable in flash and so he was dumping all of his resources all of his time and all of his money into this thing right and so we we're also living in this really wild time in chicago where drug dealers really felt like the music business was the way that they were going to wash all of their money and I, I know the rest of the country experienced the same thing too but like it was very very legit business in chicago at that point and i would say that 80% of our clientele were doing just that. And so it would be a regular thing that would happen that rap label drug dude who had a bunch of rappers signed to him would show up because he heard about the website and he needed a website because somebody told him that websites were the key to getting your music out there and cleaning your money. And so he would buy a $10,000 website from this dude and then he would see the website and it's this little flash thing and he'd be like, hey man, nah, 
I don't, I don't fuck with that at all. Like that's, I could make a better website with a crayon. Like this is awful, but the, the money would all be gone already because he would have dumped all of the money into R and D and tech and stuff like that to try and make this all happen. And whatever else he was spending money on, I don't even know, but like there was never any money for refunds. So he's then constantly trying to move them into becoming studio clients, right? And, and trying to figure out how to leverage their debt into giving them studio time uh, with me. And so I ended up starting to work with like all of these other rappers that were like big name rappers in Chicago at that point, uh, that were now signed to all these like <laughs> thug labels. And so I was working with, uh, a group called do or die that, you know, they had a huge hit in the nineties called Poe Pimp that, you know, introduced us to Twista. They're one of my favorite rap groups at the time, you know, in the nineties. And so like, I was working with them and I just thought it was awesome. I'm working with these guys that I've, you know, been listening to my whole life. And I realized that the beats that they were coming in with were from this producer that we have in Chicago. Now nationwide his, his name was the legendary Traxter and Traxter is like the Chicago hip hop guy. Like he's mm -hmm. the birth of the sound of, of the, the, the way Chicago music rap music sounds like he invented that shit, him and no ID. And so I realized, I was like, yo, we're getting beat CDs from Traxter. Like, this is crazy. Like I just, I couldn't believe it. So I started to notice that bills weren't getting paid at the studio. So like mm. phone service didn't work, you know, one day or like, you know, like it, it just started to feel like we were kind of on our last leg a little bit. So I bought a Firewire hard drive, uh, which was expensive as fuck at the time. And um, that's some stupid low number of, of you know, space on it and sounded like a jet engine when you when you turned it on and so i started secretly copying the audio drive contents to this firewire drive and leaving with it every night which the studio owner would have lost his shit if he had known that i was doing that but he wasn't paying attention to me at all so i'm just safeguarding all of this and then sure enough i show up one day and the door is padlocked and there's like a red you have been evicted from the space uh, sticker on the door and I'm like I rolled up with like oh. a new client and I was like well uh, I guess we're gonna have to reschedule this session <laughs> and so I didn't know what I was gonna do for a little while I kind of sat around for like a week and then my phone rings and it's Traxter and he's like is this, is, is this Matt Hennessy I'm like yeah He's like, yo, were you working on the, the do or die records at the studio? I'm like, yeah, I was, man. Those beats was dope. Like, I'm just dope to talk to you. He's like, by any chance, do you have those files? And I was like, funny you should mention that. I do have those files. He's like, cool. My studio's down here on 45th Street. Pull up. And I was like, okay. And so I immediately just grabbed the drive, uh, drove down there, and... Um, copied all the files over to him and just gave him everything. And like this guy Trax is also a brilliant engineer himself. Like he mixed all of this, all of this stuff himself. Like he'd never, never let anybody else record anything. He'd always mixed all his material and it sounded incredible. You know, he signed the first joint venture deal in Atlantic records history. Like dude, dude had his shit together. And I got there and I saw how overwhelmed he was with the backlog of mixes that needed to be done. Like there was like a dry erase board and like the list of songs that needed to be mixed was like really, really long. And I was like, yo, 
you're never going to get all that done in any sort of reasonable fashion. And so I shot my shot. I was like, listen, you know, I know that you've done all of your own work and I love your work and I respect your work, but you know, like if you ever wanted to see what it would be like, if I did a mix for you, just give me a call. I'll come down, do a mix. If you like it, we can figure it out. If you don't like it, you don't have to pay me and you could use it. You could put it out. I, I don't really care, but like, let's, if you want to, let's, let's try. And so he's like, all right, I'll think about that. And like 24 hours later, my, he called, he's like, cool. It's like, this is like a Saturday. He's like, cool. Pull up tomorrow. I was like on a Sunday. He's like, yeah, pull up tomorrow. I'm like, okay. okay. And so I roll down there and, um, you know, he's got like the same identical setup at the studio that I had just left. So it's a pro control, gentle X, gentle X subs, like the same exact rig, same plugins, like legit the same shit. Right. He was like, cool mix this record and the song was called uh we don't sell drugs drugs sell themselves and uh so he just like he just like left and we're in the we're in the, the hood next to another project building he's like uh i'm gonna have to lock you in the building because it's not really safe don't answer the door if anybody comes to the door and i'm like uh, okay uh so he like leaves and like ch chain padlocks me into the building i'm like all right well uh guess i'm here for the day that's uh, safe yeah, so I settle in, I mix a record, and he comes back at like five or six o'clock, you know, and uh, comes in, asks how it's going. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much there. And he comes in, turns the volume all the way up, and hits play and listens. And then like three quarters of the way through the song, he just like hits stop and then just walks out the room. And I was like, okay, I don't like, I don't know if this was this good. Was this bad? Is he happy? Like, I don't know. Like, all right. So I just turn speakers back down, go to the NS tens and like continue doing the little last bit of detail work that, that I wanted to do on the mix. And he comes down about 10 minutes later and he's like, cool. So you work here now. Uh, so let's figure that out and, uh, I'll see you tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And I worked like 250 days straight just to help dig out of the backlog uh, of, of mixes that we had. And, and that was amazing. Uh, it was an amazing time. It was just, you know, spending time with, with him learning so much about hip hop that I didn't know and like running sessions and what makes things feel right. And watching him produce was just that, that was really an amazing, amazing time. And really, I think kind of cemented who I am as an engineer, as a mixer, as a man, as someone who carries himself in Chicago, like just it's just really amazing thing to to have kind of fallen into. So almost kind of a mentor relationship with him, huh? Very, very, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. And he trusted you and he liked you. We oh to this day, still get along very well with him. I love the the fact that you're just chained in there. <laughs> it was wild, man. <laughs> and he was right, because like over the course of the next couple of years while I was working there, like people tried to run up in the building all the time. Like they knew there was a recording studio in there and, and recording studios like that were getting robbed all the time in Chicago. So like, you know, it was, it was not safe down there at, at all. Have you ever encountered any violence in your travels in the, in those sessions in uh, Chicago? Um, have I ever been scared personally? No. No, I can't say maybe nobody's ever threatened. No one's ever threatened me. Well, no, I got threatened one. No, 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 no. That did happen. One, <laughs> Someone did threaten me very, very realistically one time, but 
that was in that situation and I felt like all I had to do was leave the room and let that situation cool down and the rest of the people that were there had my back enough that I knew that it would just be okay. But outside of that one time, and this dude was just a lunatic, outside of that one time, no, I can't say that I've ever felt unsafe or concerned. Now, can I say that I've never seen violence happen in sessions? No, I, I can't say that. But I've never felt like myself, my facility, or my staff have ever been in a, a, a place of danger. Okay, okay. Well, so this obviously lasted a while, mm-hmm. your relationship there. And how did you transition out of there and where mm-hmm. did that lead to? Yeah, so I worked for him for like five years. It was awesome. Man, we worked on his, like he had a whole catalog and his label and we were still burning CDs and taking the mom and pop stores and like, I learned so, like, I can't emphasize how much I learned in this chunk of time. Like, he was doing a full distribution, you know, to service. You know, literally, we were making the records, burning the master, running it through the duplication tower, taking those CD, getting the CDs from graphics, so they had the on-CD graphics, packing the CDs, sealing the CDs, literally driving them to the mom-and-pop stores all around Chicago, collecting the cash from, like, it was a whole operation that was going on. There was a storeroom, boxes of CDs. Very punk rock. Yeah, it was wild. And I remember we got we got our when we got permission to put stuff on the iTunes store before that. There were distributors like we had a, we had a direct to Apple deal and had that original iTunes uploader program. Like it was it was awesome. Like I can't <laughs> can't iterate how awesome <laughs> it was. And then he decided at some point that he wanted to move to Atlanta, <clears throat> and he said. Atlanta is really cracking. I've never been in Atlanta. I feel like it's time for a, a change. I'm going to move to Atlanta. You should move to Atlanta. And I was like, ah, my wife is not going to want to move to Atlanta. This is not, this is not in the cards. And so he, he spent a lot of time trying to convince me to move to Atlanta. And then it just, when he realized that I wasn't going to move to Atlanta, we just like, okay, uh, this is sad, but, uh, this is the end of this thing. And so he moved to Atlanta and my wife got pregnant like at the same, like literally within weeks of it. And so I was like, okay, so now. What am I gonna do now? Yeah, what am I gonna do now? And so I was trying to figure out what to do. It's a weird thing when you go from working for one person for five years and then you're suddenly freelance again. So like all of my work, all of my calendar, all of the the gig management all revolved around him and what he was doing for five years. And so like, while I'd be working with all these artists, they were artists that he was producing and they were, they were excited to have me mix the records. Like they knew who I was now at that point. And like, it was a team thing, but like none of them were about to like start paying legit money for mixes. They had, you know, they'd all been signed to these deals with him. So like it was a different situation. So I had no clients really when I came out of that. Like, no, my phone was not ringing. I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. Like, I felt really kind of exposed. I started looking around for a studio that I could rent full-time. Like a turnkey, like, you know, like a rentable room by the month, not mm-hmm. not by the hour. Something that maybe some, like a producer's room that somebody had built and then abandoned. And so I looked around for like six months and I found this studio that was like kind of half-built over a wood shop on the west side of Chicago and I could rent it for like $1,200 a month. And so I rented it 
and put put some money into finishing the acoustics and getting it to sound good and moved all the gear that had just been kind of in my like my house at that point and sort of You'd set been up collecting gear yeah i've been i've been collect like i i had a i had a rig and i had you know some preamps and things like that stuff that i had bought myself to work at Traxter's place too like stuff that i had been accumulating over the over time that that i felt i wanted um so i like i had like a distressor and like a 1073 and uh you know a couple of microphones and stuff like that and so i set up shop in that in that space you know just slowly started trying to rebuild my clientele one 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 session at a time uh and, yeah and and that took about it was a hard it was hard like i'm not gonna lie that was that was tough to go from zero zero revenue back to some sort of that was like a legitimate living again so that took like about two years to really sort of get sort of back on my feet to the point where I felt like my expenses were covered again and I, I had enough reoccurring work coming through the door that felt good. And that and, and that spot is the spot you're in now? No, no. So that spot was like a control room was probably like 500 square feet maybe and there was two vocal booths and a lounge and that was it. And I realized quickly that first of all, renting wasn't the right move because uh this guy could just keep raising the rent on me over and over mm -hmm. and over again i had no control over the building he could have sold the building at any given moment like it just felt dangerous uh in terms of my livelihood and second of all there just wasn't enough space i couldn't track drums i couldn't you know like there just wasn't enough there just wasn't enough space i didn't i didn't i wanted big speakers mains there was no space for that like it just it just wasn't a big room i wanted an analog console again there was no space for that and so i started looking around in chicago to find a building that i could buy that i could build the studio that i wanted to be in and so we looked for like like two years, I think I looked at like 150 buildings or something like that because I had to find something that I could afford, which meant it had to be in foreclosure. And Chicago lots are typically 45 feet wide, so I needed to find a double lot so that I had enough space. And, all, you know, I wanted a parking lot and like I wanted multiple floors so I could do, you know, kind of like a, you know, main room and then production rooms upstairs, like the way the village is set up in LA. Like I thought that was a really great business model that, that I could maybe emulate in Chicago. And so we, we looked around forever and then found this building. It was a hot mess. Uh, it had been a T-Mobile store. There was six feet of standing sewage in the basement, uh, when I found it oh. and it had been there for so long that it had eaten through the six by six pylons that were holding the building up. So the building was slanted. Uh, so I, I got the building for a song, like a ridiculous, price that I still to this day can't believe uh, that we got it for and then just did the financing that we needed to do to to build out you know so we have five rooms here now big open space uh, four production rooms upstairs and then you know a full-on West Coast caliber studio uh, here in Chicago I've got one-of-a-kind analog console I've got Oxburger mains I've got more outboard gear than I than I need it's just uh, it's a it's a beautiful blessing to be in this room and the name of the studio comes from what uh so my last name is hennessy and that's a type of you know type of cognac and vsop is a type of hennessy cognac and so early on when i was doing production work we had always branded it under vsop productions uh, and just kind of showed the hennessy bottle 
there as the logo. And so that was kind of the early thing. And by the time I went to start the studio, that, that brand was, was already known. So I just called it VSOP Studios and here we are. Scary, I'm sure, in the very beginning. I mean, standing sewage that has been there so long that it just Ugh. ate through the pylons. It was, it was wild. It's wild. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And then when the inspector came through to look at it, it turned out that it was just like, so it, Chicago basements, old Chicago basements just have like a, like a tennis ball sized hole cut through the concrete. That's the drain. And there's like four of those and they're not, there's no like grate over them. There's just, it's like literally just a hole. And so like when the inspector went down there, he started looking for the drain and he hit it with a shovel and it turned out that as the sewage had come up, mud had just impacted over the uh, drain hole and when he cleared it, the sewage just all went away. So nobody had to go in there and suck it out no. with a, a, sh a shop it, vac. It all drained and that just shows how lazy the previous owner of the building had been because they ruined their building simply because they were too lazy to go in there with a shovel and clear out the drain. So this guy's in there in like what, boots? Yeah, hazmat you know? suit, full hazmat. <laughs> wow. Wow. He saved you a lot of money right oh, there. Oh, man. I mean, it's still a Chicago basement, and I we've put a lot of money into keeping it dry, and it's flooded multiple times. Knock on all the wood, I think we finally have it under control. But like, you know, yeah. You're not storing anything of high value there. Not I close assume. to the floor. Not close to the floor. <laughs> Fool, okay, me, so, fool me once. <laughs> so I have to ask this because yeah. I guess it's where my head goes immediately. At any point there in, you know, after Trackster went to Atlanta, had you at any point considered, well, why don't I just go to electrical and see if I can work for Steve? Oh, God, no. I love Steve, but I don't want to work for Steve. Okay. I love Steve. Steve is a genius. Brilliant, brilliant, oh, yeah. brilliant human, but I don't, I didn't want to be a part of that culture and you know, the jumpsuits and the refusing of the computer. And like, I, I saw it the other way. Like it was, it was very clear to me that even though I wanted to go back to analog, that a hybrid approach of using these tools that we are blessed to have was the, is, is still the way forward for all of us. And returning to two inch tape is never something I ever want to do if if I never have to see another reel of tape that's a two, like 24 track reel, that's it's still too soon. <laughs> so, yeah, that's no shade to uh, Steve. Steve is fucking brilliant. I just didn't, I don't want to work at electrical. You just didn't want to go that route. No. Okay. As far as the, the health of, and I'm jumping around here, yeah, right yeah. Now, but as far as the health of the Chicago recording scene as it stands today, what, what's your evaluation? We're in a, I think we're in a weird place right now like things have been really good so we so that we've been in this facility for six years and it's been a great run over the last six years and even through the pandemic we were good my business has changed in amazing ways over the last six years that i'm that i feel really excited and happy about so much less gangland hard rap tracking and so much more awesome musicality and stuff like that that it's just stuff that I'm really excited about as well as all the Atmos stuff and like just really feel great about everything but like the business itself when you're someone like me who's like 80% of my work is independent clients right like 20% of it is label and the one the label stuff is great when it comes through but I don't count on that ever the, my bread and butter is always going to be independent artists it's really weird right now trying to 
tell a 19 year old kid like how to become successful in this business and what are the things that they should do in order to start generating revenue and like how to be successful in this business right now. And I feel like for the first time in my career, I don't like, I don't have an answer to that question, which is the question that the kids ask all the time. Like, yo, what should I be doing? Am I doing all the right things? Like, how could I, how, how can I make more money? How can I like, I don't, I don't have an answer outside of like, well, the label says do six TikToks a day. Like, you know, like that's, that's really weird. And so um, you know, you do have artists here that are doing well and, you know, invest in themselves and we, we stay busy, but I, I, I don't, I don't know what's, what the next 10 years is going to look like. It's, uh, mm. and I, and I mean that across the board for all of us, uh, unless you're just like blessed enough to get a solid, uh, solid stream of label mixes that you don't really have to worry too hard about, you know rates and budgets and and recoups and 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 all that over the course of the last almost close to 10 years is about how long the podcast has been uh going on uh starting uh, you know next year will be the 10 year anniversary and i think over that time that's awesome thank you um i think over that time i've really developed an entrepreneurial mindset when it comes to the business of audio yeah and how to how to do things and being open to things that I, in the past, I would have said no to. In your business model, are you always just trying to think of the next series of moves? So the, the, the thing about this business model that I like, and, and like I said, I saw, I saw the village executing this and that's why I did it. Like if you put it together the right way, the rental rooms, which stay booked, like I, we've never had an empty month upstairs in the production rooms. They stay booked years in advance. Are they single rooms or do they have ISO booths? Yeah, they're, so they're a room with a booth. Um, one of the rooms, the booth is big enough to cut drums, but the rest of them, they're all just vocal booths. And it would be tight like Motown drums in there. Not There's no no boom to the... No, no there's decay. no Zeppelin drums. No, yeah, no Zepp, no Zepp, yeah. So those rooms stay incredibly booked and they're booked by the month. So people pay rent and there's no gear in them. It's literally just acoustic treatment, internet, communal HVAC and a bathroom down the hall and a tie line, a, a panel with some tie lines on it that goes through the wall to the booth. That's it. And then you bring in your own gear, you set up shop for months at a time. These rooms do not turn over because producers and you know, engineers and artists, they need these home base rooms and they can't afford to spend $30,000 to book a studio for a month, but they can afford a couple thousand dollars to rent a production space for them to call home. And so those four rooms cover the bulk of our, our day to day now cover all of it. No, but to the point where I'm not too concerned about you know, oh my God, I have to take every call. I have to like book every session. I have to do this work that I don't want to do. Like I, I put myself in a position where I don't have to do that. So I do the work that I want to do and make money off that work, but I'm never digging out of a, a hole or a negative space every month just to keep the lights on. That's amazing. And the other business model kind of similar to that has been uh, that I'm aware of that's successful is having rehearsal spaces. Yeah. Totally. As a part of a, a studio situation. Yeah. Um, 
And I saw that early. I saw at that first studio I worked on, I saw the rehearsal spaces. And when, when I was thinking about this, I thought about that. But rehearsal spaces are so much more chaotic and people yeah. are booking them for an hour here or an hour there. Whereas the rental rooms, this is this by the month. Yeah. So that feels easier. You're you're also getting to know a smaller group of people. Yes. As your tenants. Yes. And you end up working with them. Cause they'll be like, Oh, I need a mix. I got you. I'm going to give you a discounted rate because you're a tenant, which is still a decent rate. But like, so now, now there's give and take there or like, oh, I need this mastered. Can you do it? Yes, I can do that. Or can you do this? Or like, there's, there's always synergy or like, oh, you play piano. I need a piano player. Come downstairs and play the piano. Like there's been opportunities to, to create synergies there that have been really great. It's, it's very reciprocal. Yeah. That's great. And briefly, w let's talk the, the Atmos thing. What made you get involved in Atmos? Traxter. What was the, the Traxter? Traxter. Really? Traxter said, hey, you need to pay attention to this. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, he's, he's out West and, um, you know, really tapped into what's going on. If you go look at, um, if you go look at some of those early promo videos that Dolby put out, no ID is in a lot of them uh, talking about, you know, how he can use these tools to create different feelings in hip hop and no idea and Traxter are good friends. And so like the writing was on the wall, I think. And, you know, like I said, I've I had a really great relationship with Trax and check in with him every once in a while. And he kind of put it on my radar. I got to say before Atmos, I was very anti surround sound. So was I. I like refused to do it, refused to yeah. do it. I thought it was the stupidest fucking thing ever. I didn't see the point. No one that I knew listened to records in a surround sound environment. So I was like, why are we doing this work? Because everyone else, like I, when I watch my son listen to records, he's walking around with one headphone in. And so I'm like, yeah. surround is stupid. Like no one's even listening to stereo. What are we doing here? Um, yeah. But when I learned about what Apple had done to bring this new format to headphones, I was like, okay there's an opportunity here that people will hear it because people do listen to Apple headphones. Uh, so that's what got me interested in it. And then as I started to dig into the technology of it and how it all worked, then I like the tech side of me was like, Oh, this is really fucking cool. Yeah. And so I dove in really good friends with Michael Romanowski out there. And, you know, so Mike was able to help kind of shepherd me through some of the early, uh, questions that I had about how it all worked. He's obviously a pioneer in the in the format, uh, multi multi Grammy winner and uh, early adopter of all things Atmos. Just so the audience aren't kept in the dark here, just in full transparency, <laughs> Michael and I used to have we shared, as many of you know, a room or a or a building together in San Francisco. So mm -hmm. Michael has long been involved in in surround, and I always poo pooed it. Yeah, me too. I ragged on him so hard. He knows. And and also just to, I like to keep my audience like informed of what's what's happening here and, and and the behind the scenes. So Matt and I met because we're both involved in the Dolby Atmos Mixers Network, just a group of you know people talking Atmos. Yep. On a on a text thread, it, it is great. It's nice to have the support. It's nice to have the the feedback about all of it and the camaraderie yeah. as well. Do you have strong opinions about those that think that this is bullshit? Yes. Yeah, I do. 
because there's bullshit stereo work and there's bullshit all through this industry. So to judge a whole format based on some bullshit work you may have heard without experiencing the speaker array situation, without learning what the possibilities are uh, in the format is just is just as dumb as people who said that Pro Tools will never catch on and just as dumb as the people who said, well, okay, so Pro Tools caught on, but you'll never be able to like mix anything in the computer uh, to just as dumb, I mean, every iteration. Like how many times are we going to go through this where it's like the second you say this is bullshit, you should just assume that it probably isn't and until until it goes away, which I'm not saying this is, but it like like Betamax went away. Okay, we can officially say like that didn't work, but like that didn't work out. This is right. not yeah, and and I think that Apple especially has a history of not letting things go south. And so their embracement of the format to me kind of signals that it doesn't really matter if Neil Young thinks it's bullshit, it's not going anywhere. Right. So again, yeah. just like when I took the when I when I said, okay, I think the computer is the future here. I'm going to walk away from all this analog stuff and learn that because I do think that that was the future. This is the same situation. Like I do think that we are at a generational shift in fidelity uh, and, and multi-channel plus immersive for stereo the way Apple does it or however or binaural or whatever it is. This is the future of how people will experience audio. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, we are going to move further into Ready Player One type situations. We are going to move further into VR situations. You're going to be moving around inside of content. This is the future of content. So, you know, does every record need to be mixed in Atmos? No, probably not. But if you're going to want to work in the future, you probably should be on top of this technology, which is not not the easiest thing. <laughs> to navigate. I mean, you, you, we've talked about this. Like, there's, we're 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 in that crazy wild west time of it, where we're all just sort of making this up as we go along, just like happened when we went to stereo, you know. So like, to just immediately write it off, like it's just gonna go away, is insane. And furthermore, and I've said this to a lot of people, <clears throat> I had a real kind of over the last. So, so we've we've had the Atmos system for about a year and a half here and so i've been kind of in it now for about two years because i like was learning it and experiencing other rooms for the first like four to six months and then once i had my setup for for the year and a half after that we all know that over the last 15 years fidelity has not moved in a positive direction by and large right we can we can i think we can safely say that the bulk of the pop music that ends up on the radio, we're not moving in a higher fidelity direction. We're moving in a more distorted, more compressed, louder direction, right? And we've all lamented the loudness war and how there's no possible way that we could ever right the ship and turn it around and like, we're doomed for negative six luffs forever, right? Uh, <laughs> that's how it feels to me sometimes, right? And so... As I started to work on the Atmos stuff, I would get calls from people <clears throat> and they would say like, oh, you can do Atmos work, right? And I was like, yeah. I'd be like, okay, well, I want to do, I want you to do my stereo mix and then I, I definitely want to do an Atmos mix too. And these would be people that like 
hadn't heard the speakers hadn't and there there's there's only three atmos rooms in chicago and only one that's been tuned so like i know who's heard the speakers right like there's not this it's not a mystery who's heard the speakers and so i'd be like oh so what what made you want to do an atmos mix and they're like oh i was listening to some stuff on apple in Atmos and I really liked it. And I was like, Oh, what were you listening to? They're like, Oh, I was listening to the Brandy record. I was like, Oh, that's cool. I was like, so were you listening on like Apple headphones or whatever? And they were like, no, I was listening in my car. And I was like, you were listening in your car. And that's when I realized that what they were listening to was the stereo fold down of the Atmos mix. And what they were liking was the fact that it was not demolished and mastering and that it was actually sitting at negative 18 luffs and had headroom and it was punchy and it had higher fidelity because we weren't compressing the bejesus out of it to make it loud. This was at the point where if you were still using the headphone jack on your car, you were getting the you were just getting a fold down of the uh, of, of the Apple spatial uh, in your car. I realized that when everyone is mandated to the same level, Oh, if you have your phone, iPhone yeah. connected to, yeah, the, to the car. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. So, so I got to, you. To just, I got just you. to make sure that I'm clear for the audience. So if, if you've got your phone plugged into your car and you have Atmos set to on on your phone, under certain circumstances, you will get some form of fold down in your car of the Atmos mix, which because of the level mandate is now playing back at negative 18 and has not been turn to negative six ever right there's because we can't right so you're not limited right. you're not there's and, and it's also incredibly difficult to put a limiter on the two bus or the, the seven the 12 bus <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, of an atmos mix and so this stuff is punchy and more open and people are really liking that and it's the same thing that people like about vinyl we can't master vinyl super loud so we turn it down and it's punchy and exciting this is the same thing and so i think that we are sitting in a moment here where honestly if the streaming services would just mandate sound check for both stereo and atmos and say like look on apple we're going to respect the, the dynamic curve of the album that you turn in but that that is going to sit at negative 16 and that's what it is. If you want to master to negative six, that's fine. We're turning it down. But you could also just go to 16 and have all these transients and all this headroom and, and fidelity that we've been sort of not doing because we've only been mastering for CD and radio and all these things. And so we could be at a place where we have our CD master, but then we also have our streaming master that's more open and more punchy and has all that transient detail still intact but it would require them like taking away the switch to turn off sound check for people to for for most mainstream artists to have the balls to say like okay cool negative 16 is loud enough because that's just what it's going to what it's going to be so it's wild to me to think that with lossless streaming where we're at if apple literally just took away one switch we could be sitting at an era in audio that the consumer could be getting the best fidelity of their life, right? We're getting lossless, high-resolution audio delivered to us. And it could be uncompressed and undemolished, like mix-quality audio. We're, so, we're yeah. so fucking close to the holy grail. And you know, <laughs> I'm working... I, I've just begun work, uh, mixing work on a, a, 
a, a jazz quartet record that I that I just tracked, and I'm mixing it in Atmos primarily, and yeah. I'm taking the two channel yeah. fold down as the stereo, and that's going to be it. And I'm in full control of the production all the way down the line, and I'm excited about that possibility. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Like just the idea that modern R and B and hip hop and pop music could exist in a quiet, good sounding format for the first time ever in the history of our lives, like really our lives, like that's that's pretty exciting. Yeah. And Atmos is the key to that. <laughs> well, so, um, you know, I, I, I usually I always ask the guests about their philosophies about money, but your wife's a CPA, right? Correct. So your philosophy is based on a, probably a lot of her philosophy and therefore... When it comes to running the studio, what what kind of approach do you take? Do you do you do you deviate from from that philosophy? Maybe the two of you might have at home, or do you do you keep that intact at the studio? Um, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I try to strike the right balance because there's all right. So there's been large swaths of my my career where I worked ridiculous hours with no days off like the whole that whole five years for Traxter like we took very few days off and you know we worked very long days like it was always the 14 hour days minimum so like I was just gone uh, for for huge chunks of time um, and that was pr that's profitable that's great and you know that's easier to do when you're in your 20s and 30s um, so with this place and this this facility the idea has always been to try and find the right balance of working on the things that i want to work on while still being able to make sure that my staff is paid enough to make a decent living and that the building stays open and that i have enough money to provide for my you know my portion of the family um you know, last year my wife took a year off and didn't work at all, so it was kind of all on my shoulders for a year. Uh, but she's back at work now, and so we're kind of back to the the dual income thing. So, I would say my philosophy is is changed from when I was young, which was take every gig possible. To you know, like you know, maybe I should spend a little bit more time with my children and work on records that don't make me hate my life, or you know, that I'm excited to to come in and work on combination of financial philosophy and work-life balance all kind of yeah encapsulated there yep and i and it's it's weird to say this but positive energy and feeling really great about the work you're doing yields better work and better work yields better clients and better clients yield better budget and less revisions and less bullshit and so even though i'm working less hours my output and what's going on has kind of stayed par for the course for my career. Like, I don't feel like I've, I'm putting out less records and I don't feel like revenues are in a place where it's like, oh, I can tell I'm not working 14 hours a day, six days a week. Like, that's not that's not the case. And oh, since the pandemic, we, have, we haven't been here at eight in the morning still ever, which is uh, so fucking awesome because... There's way too many times that I've left the studio at eight in the morning and then gone home and taken my kids to school or daycare, still awake, 
uh, reeking of the drugs that were done in the studio the night before. Like, um, <laughs> so to not be in that position is a little strange, but is a uh, is a very welcoming feeling. And I will say this because I didn't say it earlier. I really love that you own your building. Yeah. To me, that is, if you're going to own a studio, you got to own the building. You got to own the building you because in the, the end, you're just, you're, you're, it's a race against time. Then yeah. if you don't, I mean, because I've, the landlord yeah. will, and especially in a, a city like Chicago or yes. San Francisco or, <laughs> you know, any place like that, real estate is value. Yeah. And long-term, you know, if you decide I don't want to own a studio anymore, you could very, very easily turn that building over. Oh yeah. There's no question about that. The, the property is yeah. my retirement plan without question. But if you go back through this epic tale of studio hopping that I've told, there's a, there's a reoccurring theme that happens over and over and over again till this building. And that is I wasn't in control of the property and eventually that gig ended. And it was never because I chose to end that gig. Chicago Tracks ended because the people that owned that building sold it and there were legal issues. And United Technique ended because the, the, the guy that was running it and disturbed sold it and they didn't want to deal with it anymore. Alien closed because it got foreclosed on. The Trackster gig ended because he moved to Atlanta. The other studio ended because I didn't want to keep dealing with the landlord's rent hikes. Like there was no choice. <laughs> There's no choice. The only possible way that I could be in control, and I swear to God, I never want to go back to a situation where I have to rebuild my client base from zero again. That was awful. So I yeah. never will let myself be in a situation, even if I was losing money, where I wasn't in control of my facility and my ability to know where I'm going to be every day. Briefly back to Steve. Albini Same owns his building. Yeah. yeah, he's in control. And those who control the real estate control their destiny. Yeah, big time. My, yeah. Gra my grandfather wow. was a big, big entrepreneur and um, bred entrepreneurship into me from, from very early age. Uh, and he always said the same things to me. You know, and especially as he was watching me move through some of my early career, he was saying, you can't, you shouldn't be working for people. People should be working for you. You shouldn't mm -hmm. be at somebody else's rep place, giving them money. People should be coming to you, giving you money. Like he was very, very big into making sure he said that over and over and over and over again as I was young. But you know, <laughs> you don't get yourself into a position where you can just buy a building that easily. Right. <laughs> it takes, right, it right. takes time. <laughs> It does take time, and it takes a lot of uh, stress, discipline, uh, stress in in the early days yeah. of of doing it, especially with what you went through. Yeah. Well, uh, link to the studio will be in the show notes, audience. And uh, Matt, thanks so much for for being here. Uh, I always enjoy my interactions with you in our group, mm -hmm. and uh, and and we'll just have to have you back at some point sure. to, to revisit some some other ideas because I want to talk to you a little more at length and we'll we'll split it up at some point. Cool. So, uh, thanks again. Of course. All right, take care. Peace. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Matt Hennessy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. A couple reminders. Tell a friend about the show. Go leave a five-star review at your podcast aggregator. And uh, that's all for me today. So I want to thank the crew, as usual. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Drewsdale in the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith in that badass voice at the top of the show. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and, and always feel free to email me, Matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.